When I was in middle school, uh, I began to overhear my parents uh, talking about something going on with the pastor of our church. And uh, I soon discovered um, that people were taking sides over an issue with the pastor. I don't exactly remember what it was about or exactly what it was, but evidently it was pretty significant. And my parents fell on the side of the contingency that felt like that the pastor should resign and leave the church. And there was another side that felt that the pastor should stay. And that side won out. So you can imagine what happened. My parents were a part of these, this other contingency that, that felt compelled that they needed to leave the church. And so this church split turned into a church plant. And I don't remember anything particularly acrimonious that went on and all of that, although I'm sure there was plenty behind closed doors. But sure enough, it, it was divisive. And it had a significant effect on the life of our family. And it begs the question, why do these sorts of things happen in the church? I mean, why do we experience that kind of dissension, disagreement, brokenness, why does God let these kinds of things happen to the one who he calls his bride? If the good news of Jesus really is good news, why isn't it good enough to transform these kinds of realities? And if we, as we look to Jesus in faith, if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, as we've read about in Acts chapter 15, why can't we work these kind of things out? All of these are valid questions. And all of us have experienced the brokenness of the church one way or another, either indirectly or directly. And maybe for you, you've experienced the brokenness of the church indirectly. Maybe you've had some close friends that have been impacted by a situation like that. Or maybe you've heard something about the brokenness of the church on a podcast. Or maybe you've experienced it firsthand. You've experienced it directly. And if the brokenness of the church has impacted you directly, it can be like a ghost that haunts you for years. This morning we continue in this series in the book of Acts, and it's a series designed to renew our imagination for what the church is always meant to be. And interestingly, we come to Acts chapter 15. And by the way, Acts chapter 15 is like halftime in the book of Acts. It's a pivotal transition point. The story up until now has really been centered on Jerusalem, apostles like Peter. In Acts chapter 15, it shifts gear. And we're going to begin to follow Paul's missionary endeavors all across the Mediterranean region. But here, right in the middle... Right in the pivotal turning point, Acts chapter 15 is all about conflict in the church. And maybe this felt natural to Christians in the first century. They lived in an empire whose whole existence was built on conflict. They were very familiar with the Roman gods of the pantheon who were given to all kinds of conflict. But it should have been different perhaps in the church. We can go back to Acts chapter 2, 
Remember those days when the, the church was just beginning to form? Those early Christians, they were gathering daily for worship. They were worshiping at the temple. They were praying together. They were observing the apostles' teaching. They were gathering around dinner tables. They were helping all who had need. And isn't it the case, anytime we face conflict and divisiveness and brokenness in the church, we point back to that picture of Acts chapter 2. And we say, that's, that's the way it was supposed to be. Why can't we just get back to that? It's almost like a, a Shangri-La in our mind. And it's interesting that Luke even writes about this in the first place. Because one would think that if you're trying to tell a better story of the church than what you would find in the empire, you wouldn't go about airing dirty laundry, the dirty laundry of the church. But that's exactly what Luke has done here in Acts 15. And he's recording this early history of the church for a benefactor named, named Theophilus. And he wants Theophilus to know the real story. The real story of the church. Because it holds something powerful for us as we follow Jesus in the church today. We're going to first look closely what these conflicts are all about. And then we're going to move to draw out some helpful and hopefully healing reflections. And in the end, we're going to reflect on our own commitment to the church. But first, let's look closely at what these conflicts are all about in Acts chapter 15. And there's really two types of conflict, theological and relational, theological and relational. And you can think about it kind of like an X and a Y axis. The X is theological, the Y is relational. And these two types of conflict, they formed our first and our second reading of scripture here this morning. This first type of conflict, the theological conflict, it's been brewing for quite some time in the story of the church. At the end of Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas had completed their first church planting journey together. And they returned back to home base, which is the church in Antioch. And that's where we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 15. We find out that, quote unquote, certain individuals came from Judea. <clears throat> Judea meaning the surrounding area around Jerusalem, kind of the suburbs, so to speak. And these certain individuals were teaching new Christians, particularly Gentile Christians, that they weren't really in a saving relationship with the God of the Hebrews unless they became like the Jews, culturally like the Jews, which equates to circumcision. And Luke records that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with these people. And as a result, the church in Antioch realizes that this is truly no small dissension or debate. And they're overwhelmed. They feel perhaps over their head. And so they appeal to their denomination, so to speak, the broader community of the church, the church in Jerusalem. And they send Paul and Barnabas and a whole delegation up to the church in Jerusalem to meet with the apostles and the elders for guidance. And on their way, we get a snapshot of the tension that's going on here. 
Paul and Barnabas traveled from Antioch to Jerusalem. I think that's like 240 miles. And they passed through towns where they had previously ministered. And the believers in these towns were largely Gentiles. And they had heard these stories through Paul, Barnabas, others, of all these Gentiles all across the Mediterranean region beginning to come to faith in Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit without being circumcised. That is, without becoming culturally Jewish. And they rejoiced that all this was happening. And then Barnabas and Paul, they are welcomed by the church in Jerusalem. But some Christians who had formerly been Pharisees, they sided with this Antioch contingency of people, the certain people. And essentially, these Pharisees, these Christians who had once been Pharisees, they said, hey, this is great that all these Gentiles are coming to faith, that all these people from different backgrounds are beginning to follow Jesus. But let's remember where all this started. We have a Jewish Messiah. This is a Jewish faith. And they need to become culturally Jewish. They need to receive circumcision. It's just the way it works. It's the way that it's always been done. And so to work this out, an assembly convenes. We find this in verse 6 through 21. And I don't know if they were exactly following Robert's rules of order, but there you can see in the text there were speeches for and against what was happening here. And we really only see the highlights, kind of the speeches against, beginning with Peter. And Peter stands up, and he has a significant reputation. And he essentially says, I'm Jewish to the core, but we all saw what happened after I preached that sermon at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit just started breaking out everywhere. And people from every sort of background began to come to faith. And as they did so, they were filled with God's Spirit without circumcision. And Paul and Barnabas stand up and they say that exact thing, what Peter's described, that's the same thing we've seen in our own ministry. And then James, who's like the half-brother of Jesus, he stands up. He's a significant leader in the church in Jerusalem. And he too affirms Peter, Barnabas, and Paul's testimony. But this time with Hebrew scriptures. Specifically, Amos chapter 9. He quotes that passage And in quoting that passage, he shows that the whole purpose of God raising up David as a king and establishing Israel as a kingdom was so that all other peoples may seek the Lord. Not just Israel, but all other peoples may seek the Lord. That was the purpose of this kingdom that God had established. Even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called These things were spoken about long ago. So James is saying what we're beginning to see through the ministry of Peter, Barnabas, Paul, Gentiles coming to faith without circumcision, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what this plan has been about all along. And it leads us to a fascinating conclusion. That in regards to circumcision, circumcision doesn't really prove heart change. And yet we see that the Gentiles, their lives are changing. What 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 is changing them is looking to Christ and being filled with the Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit that reveals true and lasting life change. And so to that end, James exhorts Gentiles who are turning to God to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, 
from whatever has been strangled and from blood. That sounds super cultish and super weird. And it is. But what James is pointing to is activities that would have gone on in the pagan temples of the Greco-Roman pantheon. And he's saying, Gentiles, if your life has been truly affected by the Holy Spirit, if you're really experiencing this life change that comes from knowing Jesus, turn away from that old life, from that old religion. And so in summary, a letter is sent from the church in Jerusalem with a response back to Antioch with a decision on this matter. The second conflict is relational. And that was our second reading. Verse 36 through 41. Paul and Barnabas, now that this matter is settled, they begin to make plans for a second church planting endeavor together. So they begin to, to talk through all the details. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark, who also happens to be his cousin. John Mark, just by the way, is a heavy hitter amongst leaders in the New Testament. John Mark wrote the gospel of Mark, if that gives you any indication. Two other gospels are based on, partially based on Mark's gospel. So John Mark is no lightweight. Barnabas naturally wants John Mark to come along. But on the first church planting journey that Paul and Barnabas took together, John Mark came along on that one, at least initially. And then he abandoned them for some reason that was evidently divisive. And so Barnabas is, is looking at his cousin John Mark and he's telling Paul, he's like, hey, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Let's just, let's forgive this guy, be gracious, let's bring him along. And Paul's saying, no, I'm not gonna be, I'm not gonna be fooled again. What we're doing is too important. No way will I be abandoned again. And then in verse 39, we see that the disagreement became so sharp that Paul and Barnabas agreed to part ways. I mean, can you imagine what that felt like for Paul and Barnabas? They had been through so much together. This is like Maverick and Goose in Top Gun. I mean, what, what this, this divisiveness is heartbreaking. I mean, Paul, Barnabas discipled Paul in those early days of Paul coming to faith. They visited all these places. There were so many nights of conversation around the campfire. So what we see here in Acts 15 is akin to, to possibly your own experience in the church, whether it's theological or relational. This division is heartbreaking. How do we reflect on all of this? Well, Paul, in his letter to the church in Colossae, gives us a helpful reorientation. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, Paul writes to the church this. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of Christ. Now what do you see in that passage? What's the image that comes to mind? I know for me, I I see Christ seated on his throne in and around and above and under and at the center of it all, holding all things together. You know, sometimes when we go on vacation, it's, it's not what we plan, especially if we're a type A sort of person. You know, the, the intent for the week of vacation was just to get away, just to relax, just to focus on the people that you love, maybe read a mystery novel, and then you get there, and you start planning like a 15-mile hike the first day that you know your family can't possibly do. And then you start planning activities two or three the next day. And then you start making dining reservations. And then the whole schedule begins to unravel. And you blow a gasket. And then there's that final moment when everything is falling apart. Where you have this divine moment of clarity. And you realize you forgot why you were there in the first place. And I think so it is in our relationship with Jesus and the church. We forget what's most important when we become most important. We forget what's most important when we become most important. Paul tells us plainly, clearly, that Jesus is preeminent. He is the center of it all, above it all, supporting it all, working through it all. And things go sideways in our experience in the church when we become the center. And faith in Jesus is stepping back in that moment of clarity and getting perspective and allowing Jesus to return to his rightful place in the center of it all. And when you see Jesus at the center, it will renew your imagination for what the church was meant to be. And we see that in a couple of ways here in Acts chapter 15. The preeminence of Christ, it changes our idealism. It changes our idealism. Imagine what it was like for Those Christians in Jerusalem had formerly been Pharisees. The Pharisees, as you might remember, were the first century sect of Judaism that was intent on preserving cultural Judaism to make sure that the people of God were other than, other than everything around them in the Roman Empire. And therefore, they just sincerely and earnestly believed that circumcision was essential to faith. And they expressed those convictions in this assembly and they lost. They lost. And they were faced with the question, what will be preeminent? Imagine what it was like for Barnabas who had traveled with Paul all these many years and felt that treating John Mark with forgiveness and grace was the way to go. He expresses this conviction to Paul. Paul doesn't agree. Barnabas loses. They part ways. Barnabas was faced with this question. What will be preeminent? Will it be ego? 
Or will it be Jesus? In both cases, the parties involved had to decide on a center. And what would be the center? Their ideals or Jesus? Well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and theologian who ministered in Nazi Germany, has a way, (laughs) provocatively so, of reminding us that Jesus is the center. He writes this in his book, Life Together. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. The sooner the shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though His personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren. He acts as if he is the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. But the cross of Christ reconciled the imperfect to the perfect. And so if we look to Jesus as the center, the one who holds it all together, it will free us from the bondage of a false idealism. Secondly, the preeminence of Christ also changes our reality as we experience it in the church. And as I, as I think about that word reality, I think about realism in the arts. Realism in the arts is, depict, is depicting subjects truthfully. Depicting subjects truthfully. It's a, a sober-mindedness about what is actually going on. And that's what Luke is encouraging us toward here in Acts 15. In Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle, holy without blemish. Now imagine that analogy of washing, of washing clothes in the ancient world. Imagine if you spilt wine on a white garment in first century Rome and you had to wash that out. That's a tough proposition. (laughs) You know, that's that's a lot of elbow grease. 
you know, scrubbing, trying to scrub that out. It's tough work. And that's a picture of what Jesus is doing amidst the reality of tough things in the church. And he's doing it theologically and relationally. Theologically, we see this in Acts 15. Everyone's trying to figure out how the work of Christ has transformed ancient Judaism. And after thousands of years, this is no easy task. In this council in Acts 15, it reminds me when I go to Presbytery. I'm going to go to Presbytery here in two weeks. It's our regional council of churches all across the Pacific Northwest. And we meet in a sanctuary like this and the conversation unfolds as we do all this business of the church in a similar way that it does in Acts 15. And sometimes I sit there and I think to myself, why in the world are we talking about this? Whatever this is, Many times I'm thinking, why in the world are we spending time talking about this? But in Acts 15, we see that it's through hearing from the former Pharisees and Peter and Barnabas and Paul and then reflecting on the Hebrew Scriptures together that the whole assembly is able to discern in reality the will of the Holy Spirit. We see this also relationally. Two of the church's most influential leaders get into a row, as the English say. Both Paul and Barnabas are led by the Holy Spirit, but in this disagreement, they part ways. And Paul goes on to plant churches with another leader named Silas and Barnabas with John Mark. Now think about Paul and Barnabas. Place yourself in their shoes. They could have just given up on ministry after experience this sharp disagreement. They could have harbored ill will toward one another. We could have received Paul's letters in the New Testament and, and, and found bashing comments against Barnabas. But we don't find that. Instead, both Paul and Barnabas, they stayed in the church. They stayed in the game. Why? Because ultimately for both of them, Jesus was at the center. And Jesus continued to lead them along. And as a result, even out of this scene of brokenness, two new church planting initiatives developed. New leaders emerged. And later in Paul's other letters, we find that Paul actually reconciled with both Barnabas and John Mark along the way. And so this reveals the grace of Christ for our reality in the church that Jesus is working through even the most difficult of circumstances in the church to bring about the beauty of his kingdom. So I wonder what all this means for you this morning. How have your ideals for the church or your experience of the reality in the church kept you from loving the church? from being a part of the church, from investing yourself in the church. Yes, right here, this is a shameless plug for membership. <laughs> but in all seriousness, whether it's our, our idealism or the reality, <clears throat> we can be kept and we keep ourselves from a love for the church. 
as I reflect on that church split that became a church plant. As a middle schooler, I remember in this church plant with my parents setting up chairs for worship in my elementary school cafeteria. I remember the feeling of extended family with all these other families in the church. I remember the church purchasing and remodeling this old dilapidated building and all of us came on a sequence of Saturdays to do most of the demo work. And I remember as a 13-year-old going into this dark bathroom and carrying out this old nasty toilet out to the dumpster. And I can imagine that God was doing all sorts of things in that season of division and brokenness, this church split that became a church plant. But I wonder if part of what God was up to in that church split was to show a 12-year-old boy what it would be like to plant a church so that he could embrace that calling later in his life. The church will forever, until Jesus comes back, face theological and relational difficulties. But when we see Christ as preeminent at the center of it all, it gives us the ability to love the church as he loves the church. Let me pray. Almighty God, whom we truly know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your son Jesus Christ to be the way, the truth, and the life that we may steadfastly follow his steps in the way that leads to eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.